We will start today on a sermon on the topic of Israel. Next week starts Advent. Uh, so we will be starting into the Advent season thinking in terms of the first coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, but for this morning, just want to pick up on what has been uh, in front of our eyes for the last couple of months, um, what has dominated the news and dominated our attention and probably even some of your Thanksgiving table conversations uh, as the eyes of the Western world have been on the nation of Israel. We've had a front row seat to almost unspeakable evil and horror. We've seen a shocking rise in public displays around the world of anti-Semitism. Uh, and as believers in Jesus Christ, we know intuitively from our reading of Scripture that the Bible does reveal an important role for the nation of Israel, that it is mentioned throughout the Scriptures and has a unique place among the nations of the world. And this morning I want to see, uh, together I want us to just see some of what Scripture says about Israel and then think about it also in terms of us as the Church of Jesus Christ uh, and how the Church relates to Israel, what that relationship is like and what God has in store in terms of the future for ethnic Israel. You, you look through church history and there have been differing views on these topics. Um, there has been contention at times about these issues of the relationship of Jesus Christ and the church and the future of Israel. If you simply track some of the writings from the life of Martin Luther, you see some of that. You see Luther in his early writings writing very favorably with compassion toward Jews in Europe and with concern for them. And then you see in his later writings uh, dismissing even the possibility of Jews being saved. There's sort of a, a disgust at the end of his life that, that comes out um, in a real unseemly way in terms of suggesting that synagogues and homes be burned, um, that rabbis be threatened by execution for teaching. Um, and and, and I, I use that not to bring Martin Luther to the forefront, but just to point out that that is sort of depictive of, of the church and, and sometimes it's, it's wrestling through what the relationship is of Christians to Israel. And so in approaching a subject like this, one of the things we're inevitably touching on to some small degree are um, areas where Christians might disagree, uh, particularly on end time stuff. I said this back when we studied the book of Isaiah and, and just want to be clear about it up front. I am unapologetically premillennial, if that matters to you in your view of the end time. Some of that might leak through this morning, but I think my aim is really to try to focus on the, uh, on the mainstream majority of where I think evangelical Christians agree on these things. And so I want to use five descriptions to, to have us think about Israel from a biblical perspective, and they are chosen, hated, unbelieving, punished, and beloved. First four of those will We'll overview to some degree and spend a fair amount of time on that last one, beloved. But the goal here is really to help us as believers be better equipped to understand God's plan, the, the, the glorious plan that is unfolding now and continues into the future to rest in his sovereignty, to have hope, but also to pray more effectively for the Jewish people. So let me start with chosen. The uniqueness of God calling for himself one people group begins with his call of Abraham. If you go back to Genesis chapter 11, all of mankind speaks one language and in arrogance determines that he's going to build a tower to the heavens that's going to 
rival the kingdom of God, if you will, that man, when he can, comes together, can do all that God can do. And so we know from Genesis 11 that God separates man by virtue of languages, confuses the languages, and so man begins to disperse into the nations that are described at the end of Genesis chapter 10, the, the sons of Noah, and then the, the nations are described as being all descendants of those sons. But the, the crucial question that comes then at the end of chapter 11 when the nations are dispersed, really echoes back to the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Because in Genesis 3, 15, there is this promise that God makes in cursing man because of sin. He promises a redeemer. He promises one who is coming, who will ultimately crush the serpent's head, who will bring relief and victory. And so when you come to the end of Genesis 11, one of the lingering questions is, well, from which nation? is coming this one. There is this seed of the woman. There is this, this, this coming savior. And from where should we look for him? And ultimately, the, the question is, 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 which of these nations? And ultimately, God's answer is none of these. I will form one. I will form a nation. And that's what begins Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. God calls Abraham to go from his country, from his kindred, from his father's house to go so that God will then make him into a great nation. This will be now the line of blessing. This is the one through whom the seed will come that God will bring blessing to the world. And then God says in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's a tendency, Genesis 12, 3 tends to get a lot more interest at times like now, when there are geopolitical issues, wars, things like that going on that involve the Middle East. And Genesis 12, 3 is often used for political and foreign policy purposes. If our country supports Israel, then therefore it will be blessed. And, and let me graciously say here, that's not what Yahweh was saying. The blessing of Abraham's line is in the coming of the Savior. It is the one through whom God will bring blessing to the world, and that we know to be Jesus Christ, but it is that hope in the line of Abraham that the Savior will come and fulfill God's promises. And so ultimately, the only, all people are blessed by the common grace of God in the sense of experiencing air and water and weather and all the things that, that God commonly gives to us. But the ultimate sense of blessing from God only comes to those who trust in Jesus Christ. It only comes because of the seed of Abraham. So Israel is uniquely formed by God for his purpose. If there's an overarching theme this morning that I, I hope you take away from this, it is just to deepen your love for, appreciation for, thankfulness for the sovereignty of God. It, it, to, to see God's sovereign work in his choosing of Israel and in his work with Israel. God is only subject to his good pleasure. God does according to his will. And that point will come clear to us time and time again this morning. Man may try to play God. Man may try to assume uh, what God is doing and what seems logical, at least from our perspective under any given set of circumstances. But Yahweh's dealings with Israel are indelible proof that God does according to his will for his good pleasure. Uh, he formed Israel to be unique among the nations. And you see this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let me just read Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 9. And, and, and you're seeing here Moses recounting the fact that God is sovereign in all of this. He says, 
to his own people, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God, in his sovereign grace and love, forms and chooses this nation to be his treasured possession, and God will keep his oath, not because of the performance of that nation, which in fact is often rebellious, as we'll see coming up in just a moment, but he keeps because of his good word, because God keeps his promise. God is a covenant-keeping God, and so the Jewish people are chosen for his purposes and to be recipients of his promises. Abraham's line is carried through. So he, he calls Abraham in Genesis 12, that line is carried through Isaac. But if you know the story, you know it was not without Abraham trying to fiddle around and see if he could do it his way because he's looking at the situation and saying, I'm an old guy, my wife is old, there's gotta be a way for us to have an heir. Maybe it's this nephew of mine, Lot. Maybe it's the servant of mine, Eliezer. And when none of those are, are true, God says, no, that is not the case. Abraham then decides with Sarah being, at least in his mind, beyond the age of childbearing, that he will have the child, the promised child, through her servant, through Hagar. None of those was God's design. In each circumstance, he is going apart from what God has said, and yet God keeps his word. We still see a covenant-keeping God who keeps his word to Abraham, and Sarah does indeed have a child, and that son is Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah, and if you know the story in, in Genesis that it isn't long after they are married that she is pregnant with twins, and in Genesis chapter 25, before the twins are born, Yahweh says, the older shall serve the younger. Romans 9, where we'll spend a good deal of time in the latter part of the sermon, takes that, that story and says, there is an example of God's work, of God's sovereign electing work, where God sovereignly overturns what man says is logical. Man says the firstborn gets the birthright. The older is the one who is to be served by the younger. God says, no, actually the, the older will serve the younger. I am reversing this, and the heir of promise will be the younger son. And so throughout the Old Testament, we see these promises of God working in choosing this nation. First Chronicles 16, 13, David said, O offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Nehemiah 9, the priests are speaking of God as the one who chose Abraham and made a covenant that God has kept. Isaiah 45, God said he would act for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen. And then Ezekiel 20, God is recalling how he rescued the people from out of slavery in Egypt. And in Ezekiel 20, verse 5, say to them, thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them saying, I am the Lord your God. Just use those as a sort of random run through scriptures to, to make the point that I think you see that Israel is a chosen nation, that God has formed them for his purposes, chosen them to receive his promises. Second description of Israel and the Jewish people would be hated. Abraham's descendants spent centuries 
enslaved in Egypt, uh, where, where they are made to do hard labor before God frees them. God brings Moses, uses Moses as the instrument by which he brings the people out of Egypt. Shortly after they come out, they cross the Red Sea, and they enter the wilderness, we see in Genesis chapter 17, they are attacked, that it is a descendant of Esau. Again, if you go through the line of Abraham, there's Isaac, and then after Isaac, there's Jacob and Esau. Esau is the older one. Jacob's the one who receives the blessing, but it's a descendant of Esau, Amalek, who comes and fights Israel at Rephidim. This is Exodus 17. Moses recalls that in Deuteronomy, and he says this in Deuteronomy 25, recalling that attack when they are in the wilderness. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Moses describes the Amalekites' unprovoked attack as, as not only seeming to come out of nowhere to this wandering tribe, wandering nation in the wilderness, but they attack from the rear. They attack the very people who are most exhausted, who are elderly, who are weak, who are unable to keep up with the rest. And, and immediately we see an example of this, this hatred against these people seen in the form of this attack. Throughout history, the Jewish people have been despised. You pick up in AD 70, just give you just a sort of thumbnail survey of a few different instances. AD 70, one that we're familiar with um, in, in terms of New Testament times, the Jews resisting Roman rule are then laid siege upon by the Roman army in AD 70 for several months. Siege is laid to the city. Ultimately, the city is destroyed by the Romans. Uh, the temple is leveled. Hundreds of thousands of Jews are killed. Nearly 100,000 are enslaved. The rest who live there are dispersed, are, are, are sent to live elsewhere. 50, 60 years after that, the Jews again resist. Another attempt at a revolt is crushed. This time, the Roman army devastates Judean villages. Uh, archaeologists will say today that when they find remains from villages from that period, they almost always reflect some of the destruction and damage that was done in the second century in, in the destruction of Judea at the hands of the Romans. At that time, the Roman emperor ordered the change of the name of the area from Judea to Syria, Palestine, to end any connection between the Jews and the land, to sort of erase that memory if possible. Jewish people are scattered at that point, many relocating to Europe where they are subject to various laws, various kinds of discrimination, various restrictions in terms of work and ability to, to do things freely. At the start of the Crusades, year 1095, the Catholic Church is bent on going after Muslims at, at, at Jerusalem and sending its army to do so. But along the way, that same army attacked, looted, and massacred Jewish communities, continued this, this act of persecution that went on into the next century and was severe, particularly in France. During the bubonic plague, Jews were often made scapegoats for that, blamed for it. Thousands were burned at the stake for the bubonic plague as somehow being the cause of it. The word pogrom, a Russian word, comes into existence in the 19th century to describe a long series of violent massacres of Jewish communities. 20th century, I don't need to remind you from history of the Nazi Holocaust that took place, and now we are where we are today. There is evil and hatred throughout the world. There have been dozens of attempts at genocide throughout the world, but for millennia, there has been a peculiar, virulent hate for the Jewish people that has been manifest again and again with this relentless desire to annihilate them. Uh, I, I say to you, while the world and secular experts 
will theorize all sorts of ideas as to why this is. I, I think you and I must know as believers in the word of God that there are spiritual and theological roots to this, that there is more at work than simple politics and foreign policy. Chosen, hate it, and then third, unbelieving. Can't do a biblical understanding of the Jewish people from the word of God without seeing again and again their rejection of the very God who chose them and loved them, their, their refusal to trust in this God who loved them. No sooner had the people miraculously been delivered by the plagues from out of Egypt, they are brought to the, the banks of the Red Sea, and what is the response at that point? You should have just left us. Well, why didn't you just leave us where we were in slavery back in Egypt? And immediately it is a mockery of God's rescue of them. Generation after generation of Jews refused to trust and obey God, despite God's requirements, despite prophets who plead and who warn of God's judgment over and over again, the people frequently reject God. They refuse to enter the promised land because they don't trust in God's protection. They want a king because that's what the other nations have as a king. They want other gods because the other nations worship other gods. They descend into gross immorality because that's what their neighbors do around them. They, they break God's laws repeatedly. Second Kings 17 recites the people's sins of law-breaking and idolatry. And let me just read 2 Kings 17, verse 14. They would not listen but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. They made an Asherah, worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord." Jeremiah, when citing this litany of sin and rebellion and spiritual adultery, um, will walk through just the faithless, treacherous ways that Israel polluted the very land that was given to them by God. And then he adds that after all of their sin, they still refuse to repent and to return to God. The Jewish rebellion ultimately reaches its zenith, we know, in the coming of Jesus Christ. God sends his chosen one, his Messiah, and he is rejected, hated by the Jewish people, uh, despised to the point of they clamor for his crucifixion. Jesus himself said the familiar words in Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city, that, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Israel's rejection of its own Messiah is such a stunning act of betrayal against the God who formed them and chose them that ultimately, as we'll see in a few minutes, Paul speaks to that to, to help to explain why this is, that it's not a failure on the part of God because to those who are observers, it seems hard to fathom that the Jews would reject the very Messiah sent to them. So chosen, hated, unbelieving, number four, punished. Bible gives us numerous descriptions of grave, painful judgments of God over and over as consequences for Israel's unbelief. 
that generation that was brought out of slavery, that refuses to enter the promised land. We know the story. They die in the wilderness. That generation dies off. It is the next generation that is able to enter the promised land. Then God will eventually use the Assyrian army against the nation of Israel because of Israel's repeated rebellion and idolatry. And so the Assyrian army captures the nation of Israel. The vicious Babylonians are used to capture Judah, the southern kingdom, because of their sins, their persistent rebellion against God. God never justifies the evil of Assyria or Babylon or anything like that. In fact, God will bring judgment to bear and does bring judgment to bear on those countries. But he's also very clear. Those nations, those armies were used as instruments of his judgment. They were instruments of his wrath against his people because of their faithlessness. And that's the punishment. Passage we read a couple minutes ago in 2 Kings 17 speaks of God being angry over Israel's sin. Therefore, 1720 says, Therefore the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. Generations later, that's the northern kingdom, both part of Israel, northern and southern kingdom. Israel's experienced that punishment. Generations after that, Judah follows the same path. 2 Kings 21.9, speaking of Judah's king Manasseh, he led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. There are brief respites in, in Judah's history, brief revivals, if you will, in Judah's history, but Judah remains under God's judgment. And 2 Kings 24 and 25 explains how God sent Babylon, and it says to send, sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them from his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood he had shed. God repeatedly warned the Jewish people, you have received the law, you are called to obey the law, they are repeatedly faithless and unbelieving, and they do as they please, and they turn against him, and there are painful punishments exacted through enemy armies. It happens over and over again. But the reality of the punishment is that is not the final word. You'll recall when we went through the book of Isaiah, we repeatedly saw this cycle of, of God speaking through the prophet to warn the king to be obedient, to trust God. The, the, the king chooses to do otherwise. They experience punishment. But that's never the final word in Isaiah. There's always this hope. And that brings us to the fifth and final description. Here's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning, and most of our time, is on Israel as beloved. Romans 9, if you want to turn to Romans 9, because we're going to spend the rest of our time in Romans 9 through 11. Romans 9 begins a really interesting unit, 9 through 11, because Romans 8 we're very familiar with. We love Romans 8. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation, right, for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the beginning of Romans 8, and it is this litany of assurances of God's blessing. If God is for us, who can be against us? And Romans 8 ends with, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Romans 8 is this rich passage that gives great assurance to believers. It's a passage we studied a few months back as just being this pinnacle point in Romans of, of, of speaking what it is to be in Christ. And it is speaking to believers in Jesus Christ 
who are still living in bodies of flesh on this side of eternity. We're still dealing with remaining sin and temptation. We, we still falter, we still sin, we, we still grieve at, at our own actions, and yet Romans 8 is saying there is hope because you are in Christ Jesus, okay? Then comes Roman nine, Romans 9, and Paul immediately shifts to begin to talk about his fellow countrymen, the Jews, and he starts Romans 9 by saying, I wish that I could take the curse that is upon them on myself. I wish that I could become accursed in their place so that they might experience blessing. We pause at that point and go, it's a curious transition from Romans 8 to, to Romans 9 and that whole section from 9 to 11. In fact, many have pointed out over the years that you could really, if you read from the end of Romans 8, nothing's able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, right to Romans 12, therefore present your bodies as living sacrifices. It, it, it's just a perfect flow. So what's going on with this, this section in between of, of Romans 9 through 11 that seems to primarily be speaking about Israel, the ethnic Jews? How do chapters 9 through 11 fit? Paul is very aware that the believers in Rome, most of them Gentiles, have just heard all of the assurances that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, God's for us, who can be against us, no condemnation, and very aware that they could easily then ask the question, but what about the Jews? Because didn't God make all these promises to the Jewish people? Weren't there assurances to the, the, the Jewish people? Didn't he make promises? And yet now look, they have massively, largely rejected the Messiah. So how do we square all that? So Romans 9 verse 4 says, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul says, yep, you got a point there. God has made all of these promises. The Jews did receive multiple blessings and promises from Yahweh and yet, they seem to have fully rejected the Messiah. So verse six, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. You see what Paul's saying here is, the Jewish rejection of their Messiah, of Jesus, does not mean there was a failure on the part of God's word or a failure on God's promises. And to make his point, he goes all the way back to Abraham, who was promised this um, descendants that are as numerous as the grains of sand on the sea. And he goes back and says, that did not mean that every single physical descendant of Abraham, therefore, would be saved one is not saved merely by being a part of the line of Abraham. It is not by physical descent that you are saved. We know that if we simply go back to the immediate generations after Abraham. God chose Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau. And in fact, that then becomes an illustration point in Romans 9, because Paul goes on in verses 10 through 13, and he talks about the birth of the twins of, of Jacob and Esau to show, as verse 11 says, the choosing of the younger over the older. He says in verse 11, is God's purpose, that that God's purpose of election might continue. He's going back to God's sovereignty. 
salvation, being right with God, is only by faith in Jesus Christ. Go back to Romans chapter 4, and who does he use as the, as the monument example of what it is to be saved by faith? Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so we are only saved by faith in Jesus Christ. But here in Romans 9, he's taking it one step even back before that and saying, even that gift of faith is the result of God's gracious choosing and calling. God chose Jacob over Esau, defying man's logic so that his sovereign purpose would stand. Launches Paul into a, a, a brief teaching on the sovereignty of God in election, which is a, a difficult topic. Verses 14 to 18, he, he goes all the way back to Moses standing before the Egyptian ruler Pharaoh and saying, let my people go. And if you recall the account, describes Moses' heart as, uh, the, the Pharaoh's heart as hardening. As, as this process goes on, we see the Pharaoh becoming harder and harder and more and more resistant, despite the displays of God's power that he's seeing. Romans 9, 17 says, God raised up Pharaoh, withheld his mercy from Pharaoh for the purpose of displaying his own glory through Pharaoh. So when Pharaoh rejects Moses, and, God, and, and that, that launches then the plagues from God. And these plagues begin to come on Egypt. These powerful plagues that the Egyptian magicians cannot seem to replicate as they grow in intensity, and, and, and there is a recognition that something is happening here. What he's saying to us in Romans 9 is God does this. He hardens Pharaoh in order to resist God because that becomes the means by which God's fame and glory are spread throughout the known world. Because now God will use that work in Egypt to say to the world, I will not only show my supernatural power, but I will deliver an entire nation from out of slavery. Back to the issue then of Israel and its rejection, the point is God is sovereign. He may show mercy, or he may harden as he chooses. As one New Testament scholar put it, it is about God's grace, not one's race. It is ultimately about God bestowing grace, and he is sovereign in doing so. And for those who object, and, and, and if, you, if it's your first time in Romans 9, you probably at some point in there go, that doesn't seem fair, Paul goes, I know, I know that's what your objection is going to be. And so in the ensuing verses, 19 to 21, he says, let me illustrate it to you this way. God is the potter, you are the clay. And so God molds and shapes according to his purpose and glory and is free to mold as he chooses. But this truth, then that God acts sovereignly, Paul goes on in Romans 9 to say, is why you Gentiles are saved. That, that's, the, that's the glory in this, in that he, he emphasizes God's sovereignty, but he makes the point that before you object to this, understand that you are part now of the people of God because of God's sovereign work. And so in verse 24, he says, God is glorified in having called not from the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. Next couple of verses, verses 25 and 26, he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Hosea. Hosea, when he's writing, is actually writing about the northern tribe of Israel, but Paul applies it to the Gentiles. Those who are not my people, 
are now my people. Those who are not beloved are now beloved. It is, it is prophetic, and, and what Paul is saying is, this goes back to the Old Testament. It, it, this idea of God taking a people who are not his and now calling them beloved, that was promised. And that's an amazing truth. We, we take it so for granted today. But, but if you think back to Ephesians chapter 2, when, when Paul's describing the, the, the place of Gentiles, Ephesians 2.12, he says, You were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's where Gentiles stood, apart from the gracious, sovereign work of God. Yes, there are a few exceptions. We see them in the Old Testament, a few exceptions where we see Gentiles who indeed come to faith in the Lord. Uh, But for the vast part, Gentiles are separated from God by their sin. And God acted in his sovereign grace to now bring them in, to include them. And he's saying that was foretold in the Old Testament. The end of Genesis 9, 27 through 29, he turns back to the Jews, quotes again now from Isaiah and about the promise to Abraham of descendants as numerous as grains of sand on the seashore. And he makes the point that never meant, therefore, that every one of Abraham's descendants then would be saved, that every physical descendant would be saved. He says, we know, we know that was not the case. And, and so the fact that ethnic Jews largely have rejected the Messiah? This is also foretold in the Old Testament. What we've known all along is that a remnant would be saved. Some would be saved. So then, to conclude this particular section, uh, the, the issue of why did Israel fail, verse 31 of Romans 9 says, they basically tried to use God's law to make themselves right before God. They, 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 they tried to approach God and be right with God based on their own obedience, based on their own works. We can be good enough and we can earn God's approval. And you cannot, you cannot make your own righteousness. You must submit to Christ. Which then moves us into Romans chapter 10. And we won't spend much time on chapter 10 because I really want to get to where we need to in chapter 11. But essentially, in chapter 10, Paul reminds that salvation is for anyone, Jew or Gentile, on the basis of faith in Christ. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And so the the basis of salvation is always trust in God, faith in God, and the object of that faith is Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And so that's why Romans 10 goes on to say, People must hear the gospel. They, They need to know about Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Last part of chapter 10, he introduces a theme that he will carry on into chapter 11, which is that his work amongst Gentiles also is important to Jews in that it provokes this jealousy amongst the Jewish people. So Romans 10, 19, he says, but I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, so he's just been talking about Gentiles. Finally, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. He says, I I have held out the promises. I have been patient 
I have appealed to Israel all day long, but they were disobedient and they have rejected me. But that has moved work to the Gentiles, which, as he's describing here, was foretold in the Old Testament, that God would do exactly that and they would then be stirred to jealousy by virtue of God making non-Jews his own people. He's now bringing in those who were not his people. And, and the idea is to provoke something in, in, in the Jewish people. All right, so chapter 11 begins, and you can look there. Romans 11, verse 1. So I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Word foreknowledge, New Testament Greeks, not the idea of simply being aware that something is going to happen. It is about choosing what is going to happen. It's about an intimate setting your affection on kind of knowledge. And so back to this issue before us. Has God rejected his people? Is God done with Israel? And Paul says, no. Start with me right here if you want, but I, I'm a Jew. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin known by the name of Saul. I was named after the, the very first king. So as a Jew myself, I am evidence that God has not rejected the people that he chose. So drop down to verse 11. So I ask, did they, did, did the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, is, is the stumble the end? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Israel's rebellion sends the gospel to the Gentiles, those same people that the Jews regarded as filthy dogs who couldn't possibly be made right with God are now being blessed. So God, out of the trespass of Israel, now brings the Gentile people to himself. But then at the end of verse 12, he speaks of the Jews' full inclusion. Better translated, their fullness. What does he mean by that? uses the exact same term, the exact same form of the Greek word down in verse 25 when he's talking about Gentiles. And there down in verse 25, he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And we'll, we'll look at verse 25 in a moment. But really, in both places, what he's talking about is the, the full number of those who are being saved, the full number of Jews, the full number of Gentiles. And he's also looking there in verse 12 of how much more will their fullness mean? There's, there's still more to come for the Jewish people. Israel remains beloved by God. And so in the next part of chapter 11, Paul is writing primarily to Gentile Christians in Rome, warns them, don't, don't get cocky about this. Don't, don't start thinking that, yeah, all those Jews who rejected, we're better. We're, we're special. Don't, don't start thinking more of yourself and that God has now placed you over those Jews who rejected Jesus. And so what he does is he uses this picture of the olive tree, and he speaks of natural branches representing the Jewish people, and branches grafted in being the Gentiles. And, and, and we'll see more of this coming up in just a moment. But let me, let me just jump ahead to verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
and in this way all Israel will be saved. Verse 25 starts with lest, the ESV has, has chosen there. Um, it, it's for, it, it's a connection, a particle to connect, and it's, it, it literally says, for I do not want you to be. I do not want you to be wise in your own sight. But the, the word for points us back and says, okay, he's connecting this back with verse 24. And what did he just say back in verse 24? Is that the natural branches will be grafted back into the olive tree. Natural branches are speaking of ethnic Israel. For I do not want you to be wise in your own sight and unaware of this mystery. So what he's about to say then will support that. The olive branch is being grafted back in. And he says that this is a mystery. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Important New Testament word. Doesn't simply mean something scary, something spooky. You know, when we think of mystery, watching mysteries or reading a mystery. It's the idea of something that is settled reality in the mind of God, but is now being revealed to man. So the mystery is being unfolded. As an example, Ephesians 3, 6. Remember Ephesians 2, 12, I said, Gentiles, you are apart, you are without hope, you are without God in the world. When you get to Ephesians 3, 6, he speaks of the mystery is the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. In Ephesians, he's saying, this is an amazing work of God that, that wasn't one that man logically had worked out. Man had the, the Gentiles over here, but God, now I'm unveiling this mystery, has brought the Gentiles in to be fellow heirs. And so now verse 25, he's saying here, I'm unveiling this mystery to you. That ultimately is this sequence that he's given in verses 25 that climax there in verse 26. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles are saved and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Think back to verse 11. Did, this, did, did Israel stumble to the point of falling? Is it over for Israel, Paul? Is that, is that what this means? Is God done with them? God's answer is, the mystery being revealed here is that no, God's eternal purpose for his beloved people still has a future. So this partial hardening of the Jews, that is the rejection of the Messiah, makes the way for the large-scale influx of Gentiles into the, the family of God. But in the end, that partial hardening will end. It is temporary. There are some good scholars, evangelical scholars, who say that when verse 26 is that the result of this is all Israel will be saved, they say, well, that simply means that, that that's simply referring to the remnant of Jews who come to faith in Christ over all time. Nothing more than that. It's simply a comment on the remnant. I would suggest to you that is way too obvious of a point. We know that. If, if God has, if, the, if there are people who are going to be saved, they're going to be saved. And, and so it, that, that doesn't make sense in terms of a mystery being revealed. The mystery has to be there's, there's something that you aren't seeing here that God is doing. And what he's saying to the Gentile Christians is, Yes, God hardened the Jews. Yes, God brought you in. But that's not the end of the story. God has a future work in mind, even for ethnic Jews, in terms of an ingathering of them into his family. Many will come to see Jesus Christ as Savior. Praise God. And so in this way, verse 26, he's basically looking at the sequence this way. Hardening of the Jews, fullness of the Gentiles, and then the salvation of all Israel. 
There is a older um, sort of teaching on this passage that says all Israel is simply a statement that it's all believers, church and Israel together. I, I would say to you that read Romans 9 through 11. There's about 10 references to Israel in that passage. All are to ethnic Israel. They're not talking about some spiritual sort of formation. In particular, the previous verse, verse 25, when he spoke of the partial hardening, was talking about ethnic Israel, that that's, that's who was hardened, was Jewish people. So there's no reason to change the meaning here and try to come up with some sort of spiritual term as if this merely means all believers. The, the, the flip side of this is by using all Israel, Paul does not mean every single Israelite, same way that the promise to Abraham of descendants like the grains of sand. It's a very common Old Testament phrase, all Israel, and it frequently refers to some, a part, representing the whole. This is something that is to come for the Jewish people. Verse 26, he goes on and he speaks of the deliverer coming from Zion who will banish ungodliness from Jacob. I would submit to you that there's no other way to explain that than that is the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is the return of Jesus Christ. And so in context, he's ultimately answering the question of, so what about God's promises to them? And Paul's saying, you wait. There is coming a time at the return of Jesus Christ when there will be a large ingathering of Jews turning to Jesus as Savior. The remnant will be expanded. Israel is still beloved by God. Now, what does all that mean? Let me just give you some applications. And, and I warned the first service. I, I failed to warn you guys that this was going to be a long sermon. <laughs> Didn't go as long as I thought first service. But so, so here's the warning. I'm going to give you six implications of all of this, and they're going to go quick, I promise. Only about a paragraph apiece. So if you're looking, thinking, we are never going to make lunch today, there's still time. Six practical implications of all that we've looked at this morning for you and I. Number one is this. There may be geopolitical reasons for the United States to stand with Israel, but there is not a biblical mandate that Christians must always, under every circumstance, support the government of Israel and all that Israel does. I'm not making commentary here on, on present events or anything. I'm just trying to draw out a principle for you because we know from the Old Testament that the governing rulers of Israel often disobeyed God and often did that which was oppressive and unjust and violent and in favor of themselves. And so it is okay for us today to acknowledge that Israel's government is not sacred. Its leaders, just like all of the others in the world, are in desperate need of Christ. They are sinners. And, and, and many of its leaders, like many of the world's leaders, desperately need salvation as their primary need. So let's bear that in mind first. Parallel to that, second implication. Our understanding of human life as being made in the image of God should cause us to condemn terrorism, should cause us to condemn calls for genocide. It, it should cause us to condemn any kind of race-based hate and killing. We should equally support the right of governing authorities. Romans 13 speaks about this, the right of governing authorities to carefully use even deadly force to protect its people. We should not shrink back from calling evil what it is. Third, relate it somewhat. We ought not be so of this world and so consumed with the politics of this world 
that we fail to see the theological and spiritual roots that are at play in the Middle East on a constant basis. That what is happening there, what is happening in terms of, of, of protests that become hateful and call for annihilation, that, that those, we can stem all of those back to where we began this morning, and that is Abraham's attempts to try to secure an heir. And we know that he tried it on his own and it led to Ishmael's birth, and there was contempt and animosity between Isaac and Ishmael from the get-go that has continued for generations through their descendants. Genesis 17 said God would make Ishmael into a great nation. Not all of Ishmael's line are Islamic, but many are, and the root, therefore, of the bitterness between Jews and Muslims goes all the way back to Genesis and attempts to try to say, who is the child of promise? We believe the word of God says the child of promise is Isaac. The Quran says the child of promise is Ishmael and takes it all back to Abraham. And there the conflict begins. And you couple that with Satan's bent on destroying the Messiah and destroying anything that is beloved by God. And you have some insight into the extraordinary level of violence and hatred that we see going on. And, 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 and all I'm saying in reference to that is we, we just need to be careful to guard against getting so caught up in, in political explanations that we do not see the fact that the savage hate we witness is a manifestation of spiritual warfare that the prince of this world is actively promoting on every possible end. So that brings me to a fourth implication. As followers of Christ, our deepest longings should be for the salvation of souls. So Psalm 122.6, Pastor Stuart read from Psalm 122 earlier, it often gets quoted in seasons of violence in Israel, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, may they be secure who love you. We should certainly pray for God to thwart evil, for God to, to work in the hearts of leaders to, to bring peace. That's the whole point of the, the, the urging to Timothy, to pray for your leaders so that we might live peaceful and tranquil lives. And, and so we ought to pray for God to be at work in that and protect innocent lives. But we must remember that true peace is only found in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so when we are praying, we are ultimately praying for a spiritual work here. The rest of Psalm 122.6 says security for those who love Yahweh. In other words, we should be praying for the peace of the gospel of Jesus Christ to penetrate Jewish hearts and to penetrate Muslim hearts and to penetrate atheist hearts, to, to penetrate those who need to be saved. That, that's ultimately the only real hope for peace. And so all I'm saying is our antennas should not be raised only at times of conflict and our primary, primary desire become that, that victory come for what we would describe as the good guys. There is only one good guy. That good guy is Jesus Christ. And ultimately we are praying for him to be glorified and for him to save souls, for him to deliver people from out of the darkness of their own sin and hate and evil. Number five, there's a future hope for ethnic Israel. I think we've seen that this morning in Romans chapter 11. That should give us hope, but it should also not tempt us to try to read the headlines prophetically. We need to be careful about how we look. And this is, goes back to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Peter. I know you're saying you've, you've banged this drum before. Yes, I have. But we just need to be careful on that. Is 1948 a significant year in Israel's history? Sure. I, I remember a seminary professor 
long, long time ago, saying and sort of blowing my mind at the time, do you know that Israel, the people of Israel could be completely removed from the land, I'm not saying that should happen or would happen, but could be completely removed from the land, it wouldn't shake my faith in God because I still believe God will restore them before he accomplishes this work that he's doing in the end times. And so all I'm saying is we could find out in eternity that 1948 was a significant year or not, but we need to be careful about trying to decipher from the current events what we think is sort of the end times timetable for God. He has got a plan and he is working it out and that should just give us great hope in his promises. And that would lead me then to the last implication. God is sovereign and powerful. He is king of history. He is Lord of creation. And the message of Romans 9 through 11 ultimately is your God keeps his word. If you have any questions about Romans 8 and the no condemnation and nothing separating you, trust me, Paul says, your God is a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God, and the purpose of him keeping his promise is not just for your benefit, but it is primarily for the spread of his glory, that he will always be known as a faithful God. And therefore, Paul ends all of this in Romans 11 with, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we, we need to adhere to that. Lord, we, we thank you for your word given to us through the Apostle Paul and for reassuring our hearts not only of your goodness and your promises, of your rule over this chaotic planet that we are on and a humanity that seems out of control where sin seems to abound. Uh, we desperately need to continue to be reminded from your word that the plans that we've been reading about were not created on the fly. It was not you having to somehow react to man and look for plan B and figure out what would happen next, but rather the book of Ephesians tells us this is all your plan from eternity past before there was ever a creation. There was a holy God who established a plan to save a fallen humanity to provide a redeemer who would rescue sinners and to do so for your glory. That together we might become worshipers of yours, that we might acknowledge you alone as the great and good God. And so Lord, we, we come before you this morning to say thank you. Thank you for the assurance. Thank you for the wisdom in helping us to, to see the history of Israel and the future for Israel as just another display of your goodness and sovereignty so that we might rest in it. Lord, I, I just would pray for anybody listening here, watching online, who is not yet trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. Lord, I, I pray that what we've talked about this morning would not, would not confuse, would not um, cause them to to get engrossed in the politics of all of this, but Lord, that, they, that, that today in your kindness, you would cause them to see Jesus Christ as the focal point of all of this. That the Savior who came is the one who gave his life for sinners because Lord, the, the reality as you've spelled out to us is we are all at heart by nature murderers. We are all at heart by nature adulterers. We are liars. We are people who sin, who, who seek our own pleasure, who desire to do what we want to do even at the expense of others. And the only way that nature is transformed and redeemed is through faith in Jesus Christ, is believing that one who was 
fully perfect, is fully perfect, gave himself as a ransom to die in our place and to bear in his body the price for our sins. And so, Lord, I pray that, that there would be peace in hearts today that would be a newfound peace. They would find in Jesus Christ peace with you that would last for eternity. Lord, help us as a church to stand firmly on your word. In the midst of the events of the world, when people are tossed to and fro, help us to speak your truth. And ultimately, we praise you that Jesus Christ is victorious and the conquering king, and we are assured of that, assured of that in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.